Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the Old Fashioned Radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. This month, our guest is Evan Ravitz, and the question we're going to be exploring is, are we ready for direct democracy? Evan Ravitz is a longtime activist on political process here in in Boulder, Colorado. His email signature says, guide, photographer, writer, editor, not so tightrope, artist working for direct democracy since 1988. Now, this is a time when faith in democracy appears to be on the decline. International survey data uh, suggests that people, particularly young people, see democracy or whatever that word evokes for them, uh, whatever they you know think uh, picture in their minds when they hear that word uh, as a less appealing form of government than other forms, generally more uh, authoritarian centralized forms. Uh, Meanwhile, in many countries, we're seeing a lot of highly visible leaders, might seem familiar, uh, disregarding democratic process at home and abroad. Uh, The emerging superpower of China also represents a formidable example of how even the appearance of democracy, you know, the kind of ritual of of, uh, elections and and so forth, even if it's not real, is is no longer required uh, as a kind of necessary fiction for legitimacy among nations. And one thing that's been striking to me is hearing from uh, young people, uh, young Chinese uh, students who write to me and say, you know, why do you like democracy so much? Um, you know, other stuff has been working perfectly well for us. Um, lately, I've been fascinated with smaller scale kinds of democracy, uh, things from garden clubs to cooperatives to Facebook groups and blockchain networks, um, places where uh, uh, new kinds of democracy could take root in everyday lives, but are often really missing, especially in those online contexts. Um, if we were to get betty, better at doing creative democracy in everyday, in our everyday lives, might we gain more confidence in it as a way of running the world? Our guest today is a grassroots activist and street artist, someone who uh, is passionate about bringing more direct forms of democracy to our area and has been doing this for a long time. And I thought, I thought his perspective could help us see our current moment uh, which we often tend to think about in terms of the headlines and in the big national uh, media uh, uh, in, in, a, in a new light, uh, looking at some of the local context, how we can think about where democracy uh, matters for us in our daily lives. Uh, Evan, uh, welcome to Looks Like New. Thanks, Nate. How and when did democracy start to matter to you? And in that email signature I mentioned, it it says you've been working for direct democracy since 1988. What happened in, in 1988? Well, <clears throat> a little earlier, the City of Boulder's old mall commission uh, stopped, had the police stop me from doing my tightrope show three or four times and basically I lost three and a half years of work between 1979 and 1985 and it turned out when a lawyer finally came to my aid that the mall commission in its charter 
was purely an advisory board to the city council. They had no power to have the police stop me. But this did, well, I became homeless. I went, did my show in Aspen. I was a tightrope walker. Aspen, Key West, and then Mexico and Guatemala. And that was a real political education. And in Guatemala, I loved it so much, I started building a little house on an Indian artist's land until three other Maya friends of mine were murdered by the Guatemalan government with M-16s from the United States. And I decided I couldn't live where my friends would be dying regularly and uh, came back to Boulder. I was quite depressed. And I was reading Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. And remarkably, in two different places in the same book, he said that by 1975, all the polls showed that 65% of Americans were opposed to foreign military aid. And I thought, wow, if that was a binding vote, not just a poll, my friends would never have been murdered. And going further back, I forgot to say, 4,000 people signed a petition supporting my show on the mall. So that was another failure of representative government. So not only would my friends be alive, along with millions of other people that the United States has killed against the will of its citizens, um, but I would never have been kicked out of Boulder. And, you know, everything would work better. That's what real democracy is. So those, my personal experience and having my friends murdered, those were the reasons. Now, when you had those experiences, what felt to you like the, like the solution? I mean, you talked about kind of an idea of a referendum or a petition. Um, what kinds of, um, did you start exploring different mechanisms or different, different modes? Uh, uh, you know, what kinds of things did you start landing on and, and advocating for? Well, I'd already lived in Colorado for quite a while where we have direct democracy in the form of referendums and more importantly, initiatives with which people set the agenda. Referendums, you know, are often used by cowardly politicians who don't want to raise taxes without your approval or they or they want to show that they're giving you some power. But with an initiative, you can put anything on the ballot you can get enough signatures for. So to me, the, the mechanism was obvious because Colorado has had it, along with 23 other states, for roughly a century. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what makes you think that direct democracy can be trusted? I mean, on the one hand, there are these examples where, you know, you seem to have a kind of uh, a majority opinion that's not being heard, but... Um, can that majority squash a minority? Uh, uh, can that majority be manipulated like <clears throat> politicians can be manipulated? Well, I'm glad you brought this up because that is most people's fear of tyranny by the majority. And it does happen. But the worst ballot initiatives I can think of were anti-gay and anti-abortion initiatives. 
and they have hindered those somewhat. But we're not comparing this to some utopia. We're comparing it to the other kind of democracy, representative government. And what did they do? In all 50 states, they made abortion and sodomy felonies and put thousands of people in jail and worse for many decades. Not just that, but they <clears throat> uh, persecuted socialists, communists, and their friends during the McCarthy era. They put Japanese in internment camps, and they continue to put millions of people in jail for smoking pot and using other drugs. So for tyranny, you cannot beat the small minority of representatives pandering to the lowest impulses of our society. No ballot initiative has ever done anything like those examples. So really... And it's amazing to me. I know a man probably smarter than myself who's been working for direct democracy. It's visiting Boulder. Until I talked to him a couple of days ago, he was willing to give that argument to the other side. It, it's amazing. An intelligent people, if you hear something over and over again, you won't even think about how it works out in the real world. So I think it's the exact opposite. Now, when you think of what you're working for, are there particular models in other parts of the world or um, experiences that you've had, glimpses you've had of, of what, you're, what you're aiming toward? Well, Switzerland would have to be the prime example of direct democracy in the world. I'm pretty sure that the Swiss people over the last couple of hundred years have had more direct votes on legislation than the rest of the world put together. And now they vote four times a year on initiatives and referenda, usually about 15, both local, regional, and national at each election. So about 60 things a year. Compare that to Colorado, which is one of the most active initiative states in the U.S., where last um, November, we voted on, I believe, 22 uh, Boulder City, Boulder County, and Colorado initiative, uh, initiatives and referenda. So, and that was kind of a, a bumper crop. So the Swiss are voting at least three times as much as one of the best states for direct democracy seems like a lot to keep in your head, like a lot to keep track of if you're voting on that many issues and everybody is expected to vote on all those issues at once. How, do, you, do you think that there's a danger of information overload? Well, people, including myself, even though I'm much more political than most people, should just not vote on what they're unaware of. And often I leave things out because I just don't know. Um, so, you know, only in a few countries like Australia are you forced to vote or you have to pay a fine. Um, I don't favor that. I think that's an artificial way of, you know, getting up the, the vote. Did I miss how, part of your question? Well, how, how about also, you know, there, there's uh, kind of growing interest in other mechanisms that um, can help kind of measure people's commitment to certain things. So, for instance... Uh, you know, recent proposal from um, 
uh, Glenn Weil, an economist, is this idea of um, quadratic voting, right? Where actually you pay for voting um, uh, in a sense where uh, you measure your preference. Maybe you pay money, maybe you pay, maybe you're allotted 10 points and, mm-hmm. and actually our, our, uh, uh, the Democrats in our state legislature use this to kind of rank their preferences, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, where you actually depart from just that plain one person, one vote, but you allow people to insert the degree of their preferences into, you know, the direct ballots. Um, that seems reasonable. But to me, it's unnecessary. Um, I kind of like the idea of liquid democracy, mm-hmm. which is direct democracy. Plus, you can say, on economic matters, I'm going to let Nathan vote for me. I kind of like that. <clears throat> so that if you don't know, you can automatically let someone you respect vote for you on certain kinds of issues. Yeah. But... People don't appreciate how well we've done with the simplest form of direct democracy in this country. And that's because the media focus almost exclusively on the very few problem initiatives. If you ask someone in Colorado to name an initiative, well, they might mention marijuana because that's super popular. But the other one they'll mention is Tabor, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, which kind of hamstrings representative government, because the media has been focusing on it for 27 years. The other one people will think of nationwide is California Proposition 8, the anti-gay rights thing. And that's because the media cater to politicians who mostly... Once they have power, they want absolute power, and direct democracy is in their way, and the media wants access to them. And so they play up the problems with direct democracy. Most people don't know, for example, this is the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage in America. But before Congress passed that, Oregon passed it by ballot initiative years before, And I believe nine states passed it when their legislatures referred it to a vote of men. And uh, child labor laws, sunshine laws, eight-hour work week, a huge number of things, campaign finance reform, all started as ballot initiatives. And then when marijuana started as as initiatives, and once politicians see that it's popular, then they jump on the bandwagon. If you really look at American history, most progress has been made by the people, and then the leaders either follow or kill them. (laughs) Now, do you think that representative democracy, you know, having elected officials in the way that we think of it is something that could be replaced by more democratic or by more direct forms ultimately? Or or is there kind of a role for both? I think both are the best because they're a check and balance on each other. And Switzerland is a good example. They have a parliament and very active direct democracy. And that keeps parliament humble and representing For example, you can walk right out on the floor of the Swiss parliament and talk to your representative. You can't even get in the peanut gallery at Congress without being searched, let alone talk to your representative. 
and and it's considered a a sacrifice to be in parliament there because you pretty much have to do what the people want. If you don't, they're going to do it themselves anyway, and you'll be marginalized. Um, and and there's a role for representatives, one, to carry out the details of our big decisions, and two, to really lead when the majority are wrong. And this does happen. And now that we really only have in half the states, a little direct democracy, politicians are expected to represent the majority. Direct democracy liberates them to be real leaders and lead in directions that the majority hasn't found yet. Well, it's, it, I keep thinking of, uh, you know, in the midst of this uh, presidential campaign, once again, you know, the the um, the early history of the presidency, right? The, the what that word meant when it was first developed or first introduced into our system, you know, in a, at a time of kings and, and yeah. where everyone was being called your highness, and <laughs> and they chose to call this person merely the presider, um, to call them Mister President rather than you know your eminence, and and so that aspiration you just described there of humbling the politicians was very much a part of that aspiration, you know. At a time when now we have this kind of imperial presidency that is the yeah. kind of fixation and sole concern of, of yeah. political life in so many contexts. Yeah. You know, kind of lose a, a sense of agency that, that we might otherwise have. Have you participated in particular ballot measures, uh, particular processes that, you know, have shaped your, this experience for you? Yeah. <clears throat> One of my mentors in Boulder was the late, great Dr. Bob McFarland. And he was famous for putting all kinds of things on the ballot. And he taught me how to do it. And uh, so one year he hooked me into an, a Boulder initiative that would have let voters decide on major developments to turn down developments. And, well, it turned out he didn't consult with a lawyer, and it wasn't in proper form. And it was a big waste of time. I think I got him a thousand signatures. Um, <clears throat> but <clears throat> in 1993, I spearheaded a Boulder ballot initiative, which would have let people vote by phone. And I got couple of thousand signatures for that and we got on the ballot but with a hostile city council we were defeated 59 to 41 percent so that's the only one that i've spearheaded but then i saw all these petitioners making good money and i did that for probably from about 1994 to 2004 and so i passed probably 15, 20 different initiatives and made really good money. And some of them got on the ballot or, and are in our constitution now. So what experience, what, um, after all those years working just day to day, helping people sign these petitions, what, uh, uh, do you come away with for people's, I mean, how deep are people's 
is pe- people's investment and involvement in that kind of process? What kinds of conversations did you find yourself having? Um, you know, how much are you being blown off as opposed to having the kinds of ideal civic discussions that we, we might like want, want to have? What is the, the life of a, of a signature gatherer <laughs> <laughs> over all those years look like? What do you see? What, what, what view into our civic life do you, do you get doing that? Not a whole light, lot, because if you're doing it for money, which I mostly was, you really don't want to have a conversation you want to say, to take a current example, do you want to sign for no eviction without representation? And then if they say, well, what if about this and if that? You say, well, this just gets it on the ballot, and you'll have time to look into all those details before you vote on it. But if you don't sign, you won't have that opportunity. So really, you're trying to shut down discussion and get as many signatures as possible. So I can't say that I had, you know, a whole lot of in-depth discussion in that venue. You're listening to Looks Like New. We've been speaking with Evan Ravitz, a local activist in Boulder, Colorado, working for Direct Democracy. Stick with us and we'll be right back. Support comes from Vivant Health providing integrated medical, dental, and mental health clinics, pharmacy, and social services for all people affected by HIV. They strive to assure that everyone with HIV has the opportunity to thrive. More at VivantHealth.org. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. This month, we're speaking with Evan Ravitz, a longtime activist here in uh, Boulder, Colorado, working for uh, direct democracy and exploring the question of whether we're really ready for uh, direct democracy, for individual uh, citizens have a direct say in 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 our government. Now, um, Evan, you've lately been working um, very hard on this uh, effort to establish online petitioning here in Boulder. Uh, can you give us a sense of how this started? What's the backstory? Well, right out of high school, I was a computer programmer, and it didn't suit me, so I quit after a few years. Back then, you had to do it full-time in a big city for a big company. And uh, so when I decided that direct democracy was the right thing, I realized, this is back in the late 80s, that... Well, you could call in and vote, you know, during TV shows and for various polls and stuff. And that... Like at a game show on TV. Yeah. Yeah. That this would be an easier way of voting and a much, much cheaper way of voting. And that would make it easy to vote more often on the issues. So pretty easy to put those two things together. And anyway, it, it, it turns out that's really not a good idea because most security experts say voting because it's secret ballot should not be by phone or by internet. Because if you, here's something else we do by internet all the time is financial transactions. But if something goes wrong, 
your bank can call you and say, did you really spend that money? With a secret ballot, you can't do that. You don't know whose ballot is whose. So that's why most security experts say no voting by phone, no voting by internet. But petitioning is identified with your name and address and it becomes public record. So once I stopped earning a living by passing petitions, I realized it would be so much easier and it would take the money out of direct democracy. Everyone, even Republican wants, even Republicans want money out of democracy and direct democracy. It's mostly people like, you know, billionaire George Soros or our wealthy governor, Jared Polis, who can get their proposals on the ballot. And you and I never will. And so if we could have online petitioning, you wouldn't have to pay petitioners. And it would really open up the process and make it more equitable. And just to compare it with Switzerland, in Switzerland, they never required petitioners to witness and notarize each signature. So they just leave petitions open in stores and offices and people come by and read them at their leisure and sign them. And so paid petitioners are extremely rare. And also the numbers of signatures required there are considerably less, though it's much easier. And many people many more people have gotten their projects on the ballot. And so in Boulder specifically, um, how has this latest development, um, uh, how did it begin? How did we start talking about uh, online petitioning? Yeah. Well, this is a very unusual story. In So a little background. In 2016, uh, Coloradans in my opinion, were suckered into voting for Amendment 71, which makes state constitutional ballot initiatives much harder. In 2017, the city attorney proposed and got on the ballot issue 2Q and told the city council and the voters that it was a charter cleanup, which you know, get rid of obsolete legalisms and combine things and, you know, just tidy up the city charter. It was not a charter cleanup. It was a charter mess up. And in particular, it messed up our citizen initiative process. In particular, by... So, in previously, there were dates hardwired into the city charter when, you know, like how many days before the election, you would submit your title of your ballot initiative and submit the signatures and other stages. And they were very predictable and they were, had worked for decades. Issue 2Q basically turned those, uh, replaced those dates with um, the city manager deciding all those things which if the city manager wanted to help or hinder your initiative, they could easily do it. And if you wanted to appeal their decision, the appeal was to the city manager, thus giving the city manager almost absolute power over what's supposed to be the citizen's initiative. So people like 
longtime former councilman Steve Pomerantz hit the roof, and city uh, city council came as close as I've ever seen them come to admitting their error, and they convened um, a uh, campaign finance and elections working group to fix 2Q and our uh, our uh, campaign finance laws. And there were 11 of us, including Steve and his wife, uh, Alan, who's also a former council member. There were five lawyers among us, five council candidates among us, League of Women Voters representatives, kind of a blue ribbon group. And we we put three things on the ballot. Uh, mine was the online petitioning, and I got them to unanimously recommend it to council, who unanimously put it on the ballot. And voters passed it uh, 71 to 29 percent in 2018. Great. And tell us more about what this did and what the... Um you know, what, what kind of changes got, got moving in this process? Well, <clears throat> we do not have online petitioning yet. The city has signed a contract with a company to do it, but the city still, as of last night's city council meeting, they do not have an agreement with either the state or the county to get voter registration information, which is mostly driver's licenses, that we need to ID people before we can let them endorse a petition. So, and that everyone says should have been the very first thing they did a year and a half ago, and they still haven't done it. And so I'm suspicious of what's going on with the state and the county and the city. Mm-hmm. And there's also a debate about software. Can you break that down a little bit too? Yeah. Um, out of the blue, I got a phone call from the president of this national nonprofit called Maplight uh, 14 months ago. And he said, you know, we support transparency in elections and democracy in general and we'd like to give you folks a free open source online petition system and it's one of the best phone calls i ever got in my life because other than that it was going to be how do we find this how much does it cost all that stuff and you would think that the city would jump on it since they're always looking for free money um, but instead, um, they signed a contract with a, uh, for-profit group for non-open source, otherwise known as proprietary or secret software, and for 200, roughly $250,000, having turned down the free offer. And do you want me to get into the specifics now? <clears throat> so we raised hell again, and the city reconvened the working group, which hadn't met in a year or so, or more. And on December 18th, 2019, 
um, the city's IT director told us that the reason they rejected the free offer was that the nonprofit, whose name is Maplight, had never made a secure website open to the public and that their proposal had no security protocols. And I recorded the meeting and I have her her words saying those things. And um, they're both flat out lies. And <laughs> Maplight has made secure websites for the League of Women Voters and the California Secretary of State. And they get rave reviews from those folks. And their proposal had the same security protocols that 38 or so states use for voter registration online and that Arizona uses for online petitions for candidates, which is basically driver's license or similar ID. And so they rejected Maplight's offer under false pretenses and signed a contract for quarter million dollars. To me, that's defrauding the taxpayers. And uh, last night, the city attorney gave city council other reasons, basically that the for-profit had more experience in election software. So I'm going to submit a CORA request, Colorado Open Records Act, for, um, well, I, I forgot to say that the city's IT director no longer works for the city. She left about a month after she told those lies. And so I'm going to submit a CORA request for why she is no longer with us. Was she fired? Did she quit? Who knows? I, I don't really believe anything that comes from the city, although city council, I think, are pretty good people, but they're part-time. They can't possibly manage you know, a very active city. And so the city attorney and city manager really are running the show. And I think they're just terrible. And the city attorney has, you know, a bad history as well. So what what is at stake here in this question about what kind of software gets adopted? Um, how important should this be to people? Well... <clears throat> The free offer was for open source software, and the for-profit offer is for proprietary or secret software. And if it's open source software, it's basically free. It's not just a free offer to Boulder, but then anyone else can take that software and use it in their city or in their state. And that's that was the whole spirit behind this free offer is we're giving it to Boulder and the world. And Boulder turns it down and and writes a contract for proprietary software, which is like what Microsoft sells. And that way the company would own it and could sell it over and over and over again. And at $250,000 that would make it something that only rich towns like Boulder could afford. So the whole spirit of it is wrong. It's, in my opinion, proprietary software 
is greedy and selfish. I mean, look at Windows. They've sold billions of copies at, you know, something like 50 bucks each. And then you have Linux, which is open source free software. And it's more reliable, too, because any programmer can look at the code and see how it works and inspect it for flaws or dishonesty or anything else. With proprietary software, we have to trust that this com company is 100% honest and that it makes flawless software, which really doesn't exist. With open source software, there's a whole community of people who want to look at it because it's a badge of honor if you fix the flaws in what you could call community code. So to me, if we have the choice, we should go with what is free and open and public instead of what is 250,000 and selfish and greedy. Are other cities looking at this? I mean, are, are we among, you know, a broader community of cities that are exploring this online petitioning uh, question, or are we kind of alone on this? Um, we're, we're the first to put it in the city charter, as far as I know. Um, I just read this morning that, where is it? I could look it up for you later. Um, there's somewhere back east that wants to do what Denver did and legalize psilocybin. And they're worried that the their election, which is coming up, is going to get reduced turnout because of the coronavirus. So they're asking their city to enable online uh, petitioning, actually, for that. I'm sorry if I said voting. Um, so I did hear of one other. Taiwan, the whole country, has online petitioning in law, but they haven't implemented it yet. So Boulder is still in the running to be the first in the world, as far as I know. Yeah, t the Taiwan example is a really interesting one, full of experiments that came out of a popular movement. And you know, uh, listeners want to hear more, explore V Taiwan uh, and, uh, as the which is the name of that initiative, a lot of really interesting experiments, and at least not so much um, uh, less on the side of direct decision making, but consultation, uh, a, a lot of really, really neat stuff happening there. You're listening to Looks Like New. We've been speaking with Evan Ravitz, a longtime activist here in Boulder, Colorado, working for Direct Democracy. We'll be right back. At KGNU, listener members provide the largest share of our funding, dollars that fuel our independence. Become a member by donating at kgnu.org now so that we have the funds to follow the story or the music wherever it takes us for however long it takes. Go to kgnu.org and thank you. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. This month, we're speaking with Evan Ravitz, a longtime local activist here in Boulder, uh, working for Direct Democracy, exploring the question of whether uh, we are really ready for direct democracy. Um, you know, Evan, you've been you've been advocating these kinds of um, petitions and and um, and ballot initiatives for a long time. You've you've been collecting petitions. 
engaging with with city government. Um, do people really care about this stuff? I mean, are you? Do you feel like you're you're alone in your passion for this issue, or or do you think that that um, there really is a, a demand for for more democratic power on the part of of many people? Uh, that uh, uh, you know are are eager for the kinds of things you're you're working toward. Well, most people don't care about the minutia and the software and all that, but certainly since Amendment sixty four legalized marijuana in Colorado and other amendments in many other states, young people are all about direct democracy, and I kind of dispute your your. Uh, your question is, of, are we ready for direct democracy? Because we've had it in half the U.S. states for a century, and it's foundational to the society we live in. Um, and while there may be young people in China who think, yeah, authoritarianism's made us the biggest economy in the world, go China, go authoritarianism. In the rest of the world, young people are almost universally for direct democracy. You have <clears throat> the Yellow Vests in France. You have the Pirate Party in Iceland. You have the Zapatistas in Mexico. You have the Indignados in Spain. You have the Five Star Movement in Italy and other movements within political parties all over the world for more direct democracy. Because as The Economist magazine opinioned in uh, 1993, I think, the obvious next step for the West is to let the people take the decisions. If you look at democracy as one of the most powerful things in the last millennium, starting maybe, if you want to pick a time, with the Magna Carta, which gave nobles some power to control the king. And then, you know, when the U.S. Constitution came along, giving, you know, with all its checks and balances and things like that, <clears throat> more and more distribution of power from the king to the nobles to the representatives and now to the whole people. And to me, it's inarguable that it's a good thing. You want to do it the right way, but the general move is to more and more power to the people for a thousand years. It's hard to argue with a thousand years progress. I hope that's true, though, though you know, I, I, on the one hand, you know, I, I, I wrote a book on Occupy Wall Street, for instance, right? You know, uh, it's called Thank You Anarchy, right? It's all about the, um, the kind of euphoria uh, of some of the aspects of that moment that were grounded in that, that, that experience of a very, very radical form of direct participation. And, and yeah. there was, uh, you know, and I felt at that time in the midst of the, the Arab Spring, and you know, you mentioned the indignados in Spain, and that whole moment seemed to be full of this craving for, um, for direct democracy. And then, and then in the years after that, I started, you know, going around and speaking about this stuff on college campuses and things like that. And, 
and assuming that I would encounter a lot of the same um, perceptions, uh, same kind of motivations among students there that I had experienced in these movements, reporting on movements. And I didn't, you know, I was surprised I had to actually justify why hmm. democracy might be a good thing. Wow. Um, much more, I heard people say, uh, uh, you know, shouldn't we just have a smart person in charge? Um, uh, shouldn't we, you know? It was college campuses where there are a lot of smart people uh -huh. who think <laughs> they should rule. Right, right, maybe. It's, it's um, you know, and part of it is... is uh, uh, so many people have um, have only experienced what they exp what they find to be you know corruption and inefficiency yeah. and and mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, you know, when I think of those Chinese students I mentioned at the beginning who write to me, you know, talking about how great authoritarianism, it reminds me of you know uh, my grandparents' generation who you know who experienced this experienced this transition into industrialized life. Um, from, you know, growing up with no electricity and stuff like that. And, and they credited it to the arsenal of democracy. Well, right. you know, uh, young people today, when they think of democracy, they think of, you know, a Congress that can't accomplish anything. They mm -hmm. think of, um, you know, all this money in <clears throat> politics. So it's a, hmm. it, it's a really interesting question to me. Uh, you know, is there a craving for this stuff or is it, right. is it being wiped away? Well, the question that occurs to me is, <clears throat> were these colleges in states that have ballot initiatives? Because half the country has never voted for anything except candidates, and it's really hard for them to appreciate what we have, especially in Colorado. I would argue that Colorado has the most successful direct democracy outside of Switzerland, just by the record we have in the last 20 years, which is really remarkable. Um, I have a list of 14 great progressive ballot initiatives um, in the last nine election cycles that I could recite for you, if you'd like. How about some highlights? <clears throat> okay. Um, I can do it really fast. In 2000, we passed Amendment 20, legalizing medical marijuana, Amendment 22, closing the gun show loophole, and Amendment 23, raising school spending. In 2002, we passed Amendment 27 for campaign finance limits. In 2004, Initiative 37, the country's first <clears throat> voter-approved renewable energy mandate for utilities. In 2006, Amendment 41, the country's strongest ethics in government law, and Initiative 42, raising the minimum wage. In 2008, we passed Amendment 54, which prohibits government contractors from making campaign donations. In 2012, we passed Amendment 64, the country's first legal marijuana and hemp, and we voted for Amendment 65, asking our congressional reps to work to reverse Citizens United. In 2016, we passed Amendment 70 for a $12 an hour minimum wage. Proposition 106 for medical assistance in dying for the terminally ill, and Proposition 107 for open presidential primaries. And in 2018, we passed Proposition 111, which restricts payday loan interest rates. And I challenge anyone to find any state legislature 
with a record as good as what the people have done, even with a difficult ballot initiative process. Well, it's helpful to hear those things. And sometimes the most important um, kind of infrastructure, the most important um, uh, uh, achievements we have are the the ones that we don't notice, uh, the ones that are lurking in the background and we take for granted. Yeah. Well, that's it's remarkable, and, and, and you know that you think of other spaces in life too. I, I, I mean, another thing that I find myself, you know, having to explain the basics of in classrooms here is um, unions, for instance, uh, other forms of kind of basic democratic practice in in everyday life that people are are unfamiliar with because you know these things have been on the decline in general um, in mm. in. Uh, in many of our communities. And, and, you know, even when you think about online communities, you know, you think of people's digital lives beyond just uh, uh, something like a, a digital petition initiative uh, that, you know, in your average Facebook group or, or Reddit list, you know, there's nobody's engaged in democratic processes. You know, there's often just one person or a small group that's in charge and, mm. you know, they tend to act more or less benevolently and, yeah. and, you know, people kind of take that for granted as a way of doing things. I think that might be more problematic in the U S because most people are in an ever accelerating rat race and do not have time to read and think and everything. Like in France, I think the, Work week is 35 hours, and in America, the average is like 45 hours. And people sit in cafes and talk more. And <clears throat> so a lot of people just don't have time for it or unaware of it because our plutocratic masters keep whipping us faster and faster just to, you know, pay the rent. Yeah, that's right. There's a, a wonderful history of that idea of free time in America uh, by Benjamin Hunnicutt called Free Time, and huh. and uh, you know it, it tells the story of this the of the loss of time as a political um, topic. Right, uh, it talks mm. about especially before um, the uh, before World War II, time was kind of the the critical challenge of the labor movement and and was a was a, a live topic fighting for shorter working hours and yeah. you know once that eight hours was hit um you know those elements in the labor movement and in politics were kind of removed and sidelined and hmm. and and the conversation really went away um and you you're right it is critical to if you're going to study up on all these ballot initiatives if right. you're going to have conversations with people about anything other than the you know the national um, yeah. And, you know, and a, another element is, you know, the loss of, of local media, you know, like what yeah. we're on right now. Right. Um, you know, if, if all you're doing is looking at, you know, choose, fill in your favorite national publication because it's where all the all the eyeballs are, yeah. um, you're not going to be thinking about your, your state or local ballot initiatives. Right. I remember in the early 60s at the World's Fair in New York, 1964, it, you know, they were telling us the future was going to be 10-hour work week, flying cars and everything. Instead, the work week's longer than, you know, ever. and uh, Or not ever, but longer than it was then. And back then, if you had a minimum wage job, you were okay. Now, if you have a minimum wage job, 
you might be homeless. And uh, this has been done purposely to suck up our time and prevent us from thinking, I think. Evan Ravitz, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Nate. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Evan Ravitz, uh, whose email signature says guide, photographer, writer, editor, not so tightrope uh, artist, and working for direct democracy since uh, 1988. He's a local activist here in Boulder, Colorado, um, with really valuable perspective on on the kind of the long view on on democracy and and the struggle for participation. Um, you can find out more about his work. Where can you find out more about your work? Um, what's going on now, you can find out at tinyurl.com slash petition story. That's tinyurl.com slash petition story. Thank you. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. Looks Like New is a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at cmci.colorado.edu slash medlab. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word about this show and consider leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also love to hear from you with comments and guest ideas. You can reach me at medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us next month.